11. Hebrews chapter 11 has, has been our practice in recent Lord's Day mornings as we've been going through Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to read verses 1 and 2, and then we are going to move down to the section which will be the subject of our sermon uh, this evening, uh, this morning, verses 23 through 31. So, Hebrews 11, verses 1 and 2, and then moving down to read from verse 23 through 31. Here I'm reading from the New King James Version. So, Hebrews 11 at verse 1. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. And then moving down to verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child, and they were not afraid of the king's command. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians, attempting to do so, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls but the Word of our God abides forever. As we have noted many times here in Hebrews 11, the author characterizes some key aspects of the faith of the Old Testament witnesses. Hebrews 11 verse 1. In connection with which God then testified of the invisible objects of hope to these saints of old. That's Hebrews 11 verse 2. And then those saints in turn responded with persevering faith and became the cloud of witnesses to which the author refers in Hebrews 12 at verse 1. 
Now, after the brief one-verse summaries that we have in Hebrews 11, verses 4 through 7, the author continues with some longer summaries and presentations. After the patriarchs that we looked at last Lord's Day morning, the focus now moves to characters and events associated with the exodus, the entry into the promised land, and its occupation. Now, it's important to note here, as we've been thinking about the progressive unfolding of God's revelation, both in word and event, that all of these events, the exodus, the entry into the promised land, and its occupation, were set in the context of opposition, the context of opposition. First, there was the power of Egypt, where Israel was enslaved. Then, even after they had come out being delivered by the Lord at the Exodus, they faced the mighty residents of Canaan, the Canaanites, summed up here in the very summary text of Hebrews 11 by the walls of Jericho. And so we might sum up this time in redemptive history as a time that was characterized by the need to fight, to contend, to enter into the battle. And it was to be done by faith, fighting the good fight of faith. Comparing and contrasting about what we thought about last week, the patriarchs the focus there is principally in the waiting. They had to wait in faith and hence walk by faith. Here, the Israelites certainly still have to wait. They would not enter into these things apart from us, the author of Hebrews says. But it wasn't just walking by faith. Here, these Israelites have to fight by faith. Now, of course, the witness of Moses here was particularly significant for the author of Hebrews, since the overall purpose of the letter is to persuade Christians, to persuade believers not to abandon Christ and go back to Moses. That was the great danger, remember. So, the great purpose of the letter was to address that issue. And so, here the author shows that Moses aligned himself by faith with Christ, even in the midst of opposition and even facing disgrace and reproach because of it. And hence, by way of application, the author is saying to the Christians of his day and to the Christians of our day, us here today, that if people really wanted to follow Moses, if they really wanted to follow his good example, they too would align themselves with Christ. Not just with Moses as Moses, but with Christ, even facing opposition, even facing reproach, disgrace, and those kinds of things. So, as we come to our text this morning, what do we say about it? How can we summarize it? 
Well, here the author gives another longer presentation concerning the testimony of Moses and the Israelites, beginning with Moses' parents and ending with the generation that followed him. We're going to think about five things this morning. First of all, parental testimony. Secondly, witness Moses. Thirdly, corporate testimony. Fourthly, a Gentile witness. And then fifthly and lastly, persevering midst opposition and conflict. So, parental testimony, witness Moses, corporate testimony, a Gentile witness, and persevering midst opposition and conflict. So, first of all then, parental testimony, verse 23. After the time of Joseph, the Pharaoh of Egypt feared the growing numbers of the Israelites, and so he decreed that all the Hebrew baby boys were to be killed at birth. And so after he was born, Moses' Hebrew parents concealed him, they hid him, so that he would not be killed by Pharaoh's soldiers. They did this because they saw he was a beautiful child, the text tells us, and they were not afraid of the king's command. Now, this reference to him being a beautiful child probably does not simply refer to outward appearance, as may occur to us. We often read these things simply with regard to outward things. But rather, it refers most predominantly to the fact that Moses' parents somehow, which the text does not give us all the details, but somehow perceived something different about this child, something of what the commentators call the moral and spiritual qualities that he would go on to display. And we read of those um, in the following verses, 24 through 26. One commentator suggests that they saw the potential threat to Pharaoh of an outstanding leader here that would be raised up amongst the Israelites. But in any event, however we may understand that phrase, the second phrase is easier and more clear, isn't it? They were not afraid of the king's edict, but rather by faith they trusted in the Word of God, in the promise of God, and they weren't going to follow the decree of a godless king. And so Moses' parents here persevered in faith that God would protect and nurture their baby, even when he grew too big to be concealed at home. And they placed him, you remember, in that famous event in a basket and put it amongst the reeds among the blank of the river Nile, Exodus 2, verses 5 through 4, where in God's sovereign providence, remember what God's sovereign providence is, children, in our catechism? Um, He's preserving and governing all His creatures and all their actions. 
In that sovereign province, Moses was found by Pharaoh's daughter and raised in the royal household, even as Stephen tells us in his great um, sermon of testimony before the Sanhedrin, Acts 7 verse 22. Now, we saw last week how God's testimony came to the patriarchs, to the fathers, through word and events, and hence then how the patriarchs testify to us through their words and actions recorded here in Holy Scripture. Well, we see the same thing again here with Moses' parents, particularly with regard to their actions here. Again, it's a very condensed summary, one verse, verse 23, but believing the revelation that they had received, passed down from generation to generation, that God would fulfill His promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even to a people who were currently enslaved in Egypt, they responded in persevering faith even in the face of great opposition. Well, then that brings us in the second place to witness Moses. Witness Moses, verses 24 through 28. The author here next fast-forwards, as we would say, from the time when Moses lived as the son of Pharaoh's daughter to the time when he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. Exodus 2, verses 5 through 11. There he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. And Moses rises up and kills the Egyptian. And by so doing, effectively renounces his membership of the royal household of Egypt, siding with the Hebrews over the Egyptians, Exodus 2 verse 12. Now, without great comment on the event itself, the killing of the Egyptian, or on its rights, wrongs, moralities, the author of Hebrews here proceeds to reflect on the rejection of Moses' ties with Egypt. That's his focus here. There's much more that could be said and is probably most properly said if you're exegeting the book of Exodus and going through that particular passage. As we've seen many times, the author of Hebrews does not necessarily address each and every element of these events, and so it is here too. What does he focus on? He focuses on the fact of Moses' rejection of his being allied with the household and the royal household of Egypt, and siding with his own people, the Israelites. And so Moses began to share their mistreatments. When Pharaoh hears about the killing of the Egyptian, he tries to kill Moses, and on account of which Moses flees to the land of Midian, Exodus 2 verse 15. And then many years later, Moses goes into Pharaoh many times, sent by God. He goes in God's name with that great message that often our youngest children know from the story of the Exodus, let my people go. And of course, Pharaoh at first would not let them go, would he? He made life even harder for them. And there Moses continued to suffer with the Israelites 
until the exodus took place. And so the idea of being mistreated with the people of God was one that would be familiar to the first readers of Hebrews. Uh, They would be able to identify with it, as we would say, um, because of their own circumstances, not identical to being enslaved in Egypt, but facing difficulty and opposition and some measure of persecution, as we have noted many times as we've gone through the book of Hebrews, and likely, and this is the reason the author warns them of this, that it was going to intensify and increase in the near future. And so because of all of that, the author wants his first readers and us to be ready to endure such opposition and to endure such alienation, even as Moses did here, as and when God may call us to do so. Certainly for the first readers, he's mentioned that, chapter 10, verses 35 through 39. He'll mention it again, chapter 12, verses 1 through 15, chapter 13, 12 through 14. Predominant theme in the book of Hebrews is um, being mistreated, enduring persecution for the sake of Christ, and identifying and joining with and standing alongside those who so suffer for Christ's sake. Now, the author here further clarifies that Moses chose to identify with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin, verse 25. Uh, Moses had many privileges as being raised as the son of the daughter of Pharaoh. Uh, He was given the greatest education of the ancient world in Egypt. He had an exalted rank as son of the royal household. And yet, in spite of all of that and all of the things that would come with it, he refused that identity and became one of those with, in the world's eyes, would said, have nothing, slave. You know, a slave does not even own his own life in that sense of having um, some measure of determination of it. Of course, all lives belong to God, but in that sense of a human um, uh, perspective, then uh, the slave does not even have determination over himself. He exists to do what his master says. And in terms of the cruel masters of Egypt, that was a very difficult and painful existence. Moses chooses that rather than the great privileges and the great rank and the great wealth of Egypt. And interestingly here how the author focuses on not these things as necessarily good gifts that can be richly enjoyed in acknowledgement to God, but as those that enable the fleeting pleasures of sin. And so that ought to be uh, a warning uh, to us. Um, You may wish and desire, whoever you are here this morning, that you had so much more of this world than you presently do. In the context of this, be warned and be thankful that God may not have given you more as you desire. That that might be a good thing. What would you do with those things? 
Would you then say, well, now I can have access to the pleasures of sin far more than I do right now? If I had high rank, if I had many possessions, if I had many privileges. Notice what the author says here. It's a very um, singular word. We will sometimes read over it also quickly. The fleeting pleasures of sin. The author here does not deny that there may be some physical pleasure to sin. Sin would not be half as attractive if there was no pleasure at all to it. Where is the temptation if there's no pleasure in it at all? If sin was just always and immediately painful, then tell me which one of us would consider that to be of any great temptation. But where there is this fleeting pleasure, therein lies the temptation. There is the bait upon the hook, as we would say. But Moses here saw it for what it was, by faith, and rejected it. And we are to see that as a warning, that we too, even if we have opportunity, need to be careful. And certainly where it becomes a conflict between either or, where it is, think of the example of Joseph. How shall I sin against my God? Tempted by Potiphar's wife. In that scenario, we are always to reject the fleeting pressures of sin. And so it was with Moses here. Moses here considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward, verse 26. Now, the word reproach here is significant because the author will use the same term to describe the insults. Uh, he did so back in chapter 10, verse 33. The insults previously experienced by the first readers of Hebrews in their Christian testimony. And he will use it again to challenge them that they are to bear the disgrace that Jesus bore himself when we get to chapter 13 and verse 13. What is he talking about here? What is this reproach then, the reproach of Christ? Well, Gerhardus Voss, great uh, Dutch um, scholar, commentator, puts it like this. He says, quote, In Hebrews eleven twenty six, we read that Moses preferred the reproach of Christ to the treasures of Egypt. This phrase, the reproach of Christ, is explained by its usage in Hebrews 13, 13. Let us therefore go forth unto Him, that is unto Jesus, without the camp, bearing his reproach. This reproach is thus seen to be a reproach which Christ himself first bore and which we now bear together with him. So, we must similarly interpret the reproach of Christ borne by Moses. He goes on to say, quote, this does not imply that Moses had a prophetic knowledge of the sufferings of the future Messiah, but rather that the, the reproach which Moses bore 
was objectively identical with the reproach suffered by Christ and His people throughout the ages. And so Voss concludes, this implies, therefore, that back of all the reproaches and sufferings which God's people have endured stood Christ. How this appeared to Moses' own subjective consciousness is told us in verse 25, choosing rather to share ill treatment with the people of God. End quote. You see what Voss is saying? Here there is an identification of God's people with Christ. That's why it's called the reproach of Christ. Now, how it manifests itself in different times and places in uh, the unfolding of redemptive history, be it for Moses, be it for the first readers of the book of Hebrews, be it for us, will differ according to God's providence in ordaining all things in our circumstances. But the objectively identical element in it is we endure that reproach which Christ Himself endured. If they persecuted me, Jesus says, they'll persecute you. A servant is not greater than his master. Whether the servant be Moses, persecuted by Egyptians, whether it be um, Christians in the first century, persecuted by Jews or by Romans, or whether it be us today persecuted by authorities in our own day and generation. Well, then we might ask, how was Moses able to do this? I mean, how was he able to give up all of these things which he could see with his eyes for something that he could not see except by the eye of faith? For he looked to the reward, the author says, verse 26. Moses shared in the promised eternal inheritance secured by Christ for all believers, past, present, and future. The author has made that clear, Hebrews 9.15. He'll go on to say it again, Hebrews 11.39 through 40. And when we get to chapter 12, verses 22 through 24. Just like the patriarchs last week, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses looked ahead to the reward and responded then with persevering faith that God would fulfill the promises He made to the patriarchs. And in the light of that, looking forward to that, then all the splendor and wealth of Egypt could not be compared with that reward that was promised. Even if that meant he had to endure temporarily um, a lowly condition, enslaved to these Egyptians, nevertheless, as the Apostle Paul would say, these things are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us hereafter. And so he saw, as all of God's people see, the reward is bound up with the coming of the promised Messiah that would come from their race. God working out His purposes. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, to the great son of David, Jesus Christ the Lord. And so like his parents before him, Moses feared God rather than the great wrath of Pharaoh. Verse 27. Now, there is some debate in the commentaries as to 
when this uh, particular phrase applies to in, in the events of the life of Moses. Uh, when was it that uh, Moses feared God rather than the anger of Pharaoh? Was it a, this incident or that incident or whatever? Um, I think this most naturally refers to the time when he fled from Pharaoh when he'd killed the Egyptian and went to live in Midian, Exodus 2.15. Uh, we need to understand even in that event, though, Moses was not intimidated by Pharaoh's threat to kill him. Rather, under God's providence, he fled that his life would be preserved so that he could fill, uh, fulfill the purpose that God would call him to. And we read that then he endured many years as a stranger in the foreign land of Midian, Exodus 2, verse 22. Notice here that the author of Hebrews speaks very positively about Moses' motivation in doing that. It's not critique that he fled. It's not pointed out as something he should not have done. Um, rather, he acted in faith. Um, he did not fear Pharaoh, um, but he uh, withdrew at that point um, for the Lord's purpose and will to unfold in the future. Um, one commentator puts it like this. He says, quote, The author of Hebrews speaks positively about Moses' motivation at this point. He was capable of acting without fear because he persevered as seeing him who is invisible. Verse 27. See where Moses focuses here, even threatened by mighty Pharaoh of Egypt. He focused not on this Pharaoh that he could see, but on the great eternal God who is invisible. And he believed, even as we've read earlier in the book of Hebrews, that this God, the eternal God, is the one who rewards those who earnestly seek Him. Of course, this is significant for the author of Hebrews as he's writing in his own day, as he prepares for the great exhortation that he's coming to, to believers, as we come to Hebrews 12 verse 2, that they have to endure. And uh, they have to endure before they will enter into their heavenly inheritance. And they must do so by looking where? To Christ, to God, in and through Jesus Christ, the one who yet is unseen to our physical eyes, um, but yet the one who is seen by faith, even as we look to Him ourselves as believers this morning. Notice also here that Moses testified and persevered in his faith by keeping the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, we read in verse 28. Here he obeys God's command to put the animal blood, you remember, on the door frames of their houses. They sacrificed the Passover lamb. They ate of the Passover meal, and they spread the, the blood upon the posts and the lintels of the doors of their houses, so that he who destroyed the firstborn should not touch them. Exodus 12 and verses 1 through 13. Here we see again, this is very condensed uh, by the author of Hebrews. He does not treat this at great length. But the Passover meal was to be a sign to that generation of their impending deliverance. Remember, they were to eat it dressed in haste or they were shortly to go out of 
Egypt. Um, but they would be delivered not only from Egypt, but also from subsequent threat of death in the sea when Pharaoh then pursued them, having at first let them go. Um, here the Passover meal is to encourage and strengthen their faith that God will do as He has promised. Passover meal is also meant to be a perpetual memorial of God's saving grace to later generations. They were to continue to observe this as a testimony that God was faithful to His promise. And part of uh, the Passover is to pass that on from generation to generation. What does this thing mean? Why do we do this? Exodus 12, 14 through 28. What we see here, of course, is a further progressive unfolding of the covenant of grace, uh, that Passover is the great uh, pointer and sign um, to God's deliverance, not only physically of Israelites in the time of Egyptian slavery, but ultimately, of course, to God's great deliverance of all His people, that great exodus as Jesus speaks of it in the Gospels. Here, we have a further unfolding of that, a progressive unfolding. Uh, remember, it's organic. It's the same kind. Uh, even when God first revealed it, Genesis 3, um, conflict between seed of the woman, seed of the serpent, same kind, organic, being unfolded, but progressively expanding in its um, light and detail. And so, like Noah, who constructed an ark before he could see the flood judgment approaching, Moses, too, obeyed God and kept Passover before there was any indication of the coming judgment of the slayer of the firstborn. By faith, he not only faced the wrath of an earthly king, uh, he did. Um, but Moses also faced the wrath of a heavenly one. He saw by faith a greater king than Pharaoh, one who is not visible to the naked eye, for God is spirit. But he saw him as no less threatening to Israelites as to Egyptians if God's appointed way of deliverance was not observed. The slayer of the firstborn had come and would slay all firstborn except those houses where the blood was applied. Now, because we know the story, uh, many of us, we perhaps don't often think about that. Um, but as Moses reflected, meditated on what God had said, he realized the greatness of the great King of heaven and of His great judgment that was coming. And what it would mean if he disobeyed the one and only way that God had supplied by way of deliverance. And in the light of that, then, he obeyed, kept the Passover, um, even before there was any evidence of the judgment having arrived. And so he did so. He saw to it that the sacrificial blood was sprinkled on the lintels and the doorposts 
even for the protection not only of himself and his household, but for all of the Israelites. Well, then that brings us in the third place, and much more briefly, to now corporate testimony of Israel, verses 29 and 30. The author of Hebrews now turns to the faith of the Israelites when they pass through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians, who were tempted to do the same, were drowned, as we read in verse 29. Although they were afraid when Pharaoh and his army caught up with them, you remember, um, they were caught, as it were, between the army and the waters of the Red Sea, Moses urged the people to stand firm, to remain persevering in their faith and see the deliverance that God would bring, Exodus 14, verse 13. Here we see a corporate testimony. Up until now, it is testimony of individuals in the main. But now we see the testimony of the community of the people of God. The Israelites persevered in their faith. Despite opposition, opposition of Pharaoh and his mighty army with all of his chariots, and they placed their lives in the hands of God. They trusted in the Lord who delivered them. He held back the waters so that they might escape. And then when they had successfully crossed, the waters came back and destroyed Pharaoh and his mighty army. Exodus 14, verse 23 through 31. Again, we see here a progressive unfolding of the testimony, of the witness of the Old Testament, now here in the community of the people of God, rather than individuals or in individual uh, families of the patriarchs. That's continued when we get to the conquest of Canaan. Conquest of Canaan is introduced with a brief reference to the first major battle, that which is known, I think, pretty well to everyone who knows anything about this uh, part of the Bible, the Battle of Jericho, fought under Joshua, when, of course, the walls came tumbling down. Uh, Joshua 5, 13 through 6, 27. He is summarized again in a very condensed form, verse 30 of Hebrews 11. Here again, we see further corporate testimony of another generation of Israelites. The next generation beyond Moses. In the main, the previous generation had perished. The author doesn't deal with that much here because he's already talked about that back in Hebrews chapter 6. He moves on now to the next generation. The only ones who survived, you remember, um, Joshua and Caleb. Uh, but now a new generation had arisen. And this next generation of Israelites also persevered in faith at this time in response to God's extraordinary instructions about the defeat of Jericho. Now, if you want to go again through all of the details of that, let me commend you to a good commentary on the book of Joshua or even to the series we did many years ago uh, in that book. Uh, here, the author, again, is not concerned to go through all the details and all of the way in which the Lord told him to march around once and then the next day and the next day and then seven times on the seventh day and all of that. He simply refers to the event itself at the point of God's great victory over them. The walls came down. The great symbol of strength of uh, the city uh, collapsed. And uh, here we see uh, he simply points to that as 
This is their witness, their testimony. That though this didn't seem to make any sense to a human analysis, if you had come with um, foot soldiers to Jericho and said, well, how are you going to take this city? Then it would not seem a good idea simply just to walk around and then go back to camp. And it would not seem to be particularly effective against such mighty walls of defense to simply shout and they would come down. But it was by faith. They trusted in what God had said. They trusted in the invisible one. They trusted that this was part of God's plan and purpose in His whole plan of redemption that would come to the line of the Messiah, a greater Joshua the great captain of the host of the people of God. Well, then that brings us in the fourth place to a Gentile witness, verse 31, a Gentile witness. Rahab here is the last person uh, to be considered in this historical sequence of Moses and the Israelites. You remember she had welcomed the spies who had been sent to Jericho by Joshua uh, she protected them, Joshua 2, 1 through 9. Again, we don't know how in all the details, but she knew what God had done for the Israelites and therefore sought deliverance for herself and her family from the destruction that was coming upon that city, Joshua 2, 10 through 13. And so again, the pattern is the same. Again, the author doesn't go through all the details but in response to the revelation that she had, she knew the Lord and what He had done uh, as to who God was, as to His works and ways. And so then she too persevered in faith. And so we read here, she did not perish with those who did not believe. Again, there's a further uh, unfolding of the revelation of the covenant of grace here. Uh, not just now to ethnic Jews, but to include Gentiles. Um, just one here, but Gentile nevertheless. Um, here Rahab's implied status as a Gentile and her reputation as a prostitute were no barrier to her being delivered along with all those who pers persevere in faith in God's promise. Here we see the further unfolding of God's magnificent mercy and grace, Jews and Gentiles um, being included in His great purpose of salvation. Um, wonderful to see that. Well, then that brings us in the last place this morning to persevering midst opposition and conflict. Persevering midst opposition and conflict. As I said at the beginning, the period of the Exodus and the conquest in of Canaan in Israel's history was characterized by conflict. Um, conflict between the people of God and the unbelieving world. And so the primary challenge for the Israelites was to overcome fear um, and to overcome the uh, great danger of losing hope when you have to face conflict in order to inherit the great reward. Um, the author of Hebrews sees the responses of Moses in this context as particularly relevant to those he's addressing. 
fearing oppressive rulers in the first century, those who oppose God's people, whether it's the first century or the 21st century or any other time in between, um, facing that opposition, um, fear is a natural human reaction. Um, and we are somewhat foolish if we deny that. Uh, there may be some people who seem to have no fear of anything. Um, that can actually be a folly if you don't recognize a, a genuine danger. Um, and so it is very natural, whether it's for ancient Israelites, first century Christians, 21st century Christians, um, as a pure natural human response um, to have a sense of fear of powerful rulers who oppose God, His Christ, His gospel, and His church. But, and this is the point that the author is trying to make, that fear can be overcome. How? By telling people, just don't be afraid. You know, just get your mind focused. Just don't think about it. He doesn't say any of that, does he? How does he say that? Fear can be overcome by focusing on the one who Moses focused on. Who was that? The one who is invisible, the great God, the great King, whom all men are to fear, whether they be kings or paupers, and trusting in His power to grant what He has promised. What's the Exodus all about? The Exodus is all about God showing that He is a greater king than Pharaoh. That's what it's about. And showing that God comes to deliver His son Israel and saying to Pharaoh, okay, you want to have fight and conflict, then to say this reverently, God would say, bring it on. Bring it on. For God to show that He is the great King with the great power who is able to deliver His Son even from the hands of Pharaoh. And to show Pharaoh the great judgment of putting His Son to death for His folly of again and again refusing who is this God of the Israelites that I should let them go. That's what this is all about. And when we have that perspective as God's people, saying we are the people of that God, that is what delivers us from the fear of men and from the loss of hope that God will at last deliver on His promise. The related challenge then not to abandon God and His people in the midst of trial and opposition um, to want to avoid mistreatment and suffering for the fleeting pleasures of sin um, are in that same category then, aren't they? Like Moses, we are to be convinced about the surpassing wealth of the reward that God promises to all of those who persevere in faith. So, brother and sister, here's the question. Are you convinced of that? Are you convinced of that? The Lord is not calling you to have to flee to Midian from the wrath of a Pharaoh and be there for 40 years. He's not 
calling you to be identified with ancient Israelites and to then have to make bricks even without having been given straw. The circumstances will be different. But whatever they are, are you convinced, brother and sister in Christ, that the surpassing wealth of the great reward that God promises you, remember the description of it to the patriarchs, the heavenly country, the greatest city whose foundations and builder is God? Are you convinced of that? Like Rahab, are you certain about God's power to save? And on account of that, choose life rather than death, whatever the cost. Even to turn against everyone else in your community, in your family, if that's what it requires. To identify with the reproach of Christ, with God's people, and with the God who is able to deliver. Persevering faith would consequently enable the Israelites to endure a weight, as the patriarchs did, but also to endure conflict and warfare until the one whose coming was drawing near would be present when the time had fully come. Even when they inherited the land under Joshua, remember when we went through that series, um, it was never perfectly a cessation of hostility. They still had to guard borders. They still had to fight the good fight of faith. And so here what's pictured is not so much the waiting of the patriarchal period, but the waiting in the midst of conflict and war, the fight of faith, until the one comes, and then even beyond that, until he comes again, and then all warfare and conflict in the Christian life will cease, and the promise will be consummately fulfilled. With that perspective, we obtain encouragement this morning to wait. However long that may, ne may need to be, it may be lifelong for some of us. If the Lord does not return, it will be lifelong but we are unable to do so. One modern commentator puts it like this as we wait and fight by faith. He says, what is this faith? He says this, quote, faith is not a whistling in the dark. It's not looking for a silver lining or a happy feeling. It is neither make-believe, and you can tell now he's a modern commentator, nor virtual reality, he says, but it is courageous. It faces reality, yes, grim reality at times in this fallen world, before obtaining promises when it will be more than vindicated." End quote. Isn't that wonderful? So often we get taken up, don't we, with the difficulties here below, and at best, we want something that's just a distraction from it for a moment. That's why so many people flee to all sorts of fleeting pleasures, don't they? To avoid the difficulties and the pains. That is not how the Christian is to respond to the life of trial 
to the life of suffering, to the life of conflict, to the fight of faith. They are to fight the good fight by that persevering faith that we have here before us, pictured in Moses and the Israelites. Courageous faith by the Lord's grace. Facing reality, even grim reality at times, before we obtain the promise when it will be more than vindicated. May God grant it to each one of us. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that You would indeed grant such faith to each and every one of us. We pray, O Lord, that we might turn to Christ and turn away from those fleeting pleasures of sin, whatever opportunity might be open to us this morning. We are thankful, O Lord, for the way in which You hedge us in and even close off many opportunities from us, even of which we may be unaware. But yet, O Lord, we know that there are still so many opportunities open and how so many are lost in their sins, indulging in those pleasures, fleeting though they may be, unaware that at the last great day they will mock them in their great condemnation. Father, we pray, save each and every soul from such end and destiny this morning and grant that we might turn to Christ, even enduring the reproach of Christ, even for His sake in this day of walking this veil of tears, but knowing that the reward is set before us and knowing, O Lord, that that reward is ours if we are in Christ. Grant us then to persevere. Help us, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen.